Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of I Am Speaking with Shaylee Shee and Kosha. To, today, our guest is an amazing woman. We learned so much from her, both from her personal story, but also from what sort of the, the information that we got about being bipolar. This woman's name is Sally Alter originally from England, but now lives in the States. Yes. And now lives in Texas. So I'm like, are you sure you want to stay in Texas? <laughs> she does mention this. She mentions her age a few times. She is about to turn 75. She had her first break for the bipolar with the bipolar when she was 15, she says. And I think we need to put it in perspective. The meds that we have now and the understanding, which is not that great still, of bipolar, it definitely wasn't there 60 years ago. And so she talks about some pretty old school meds and some pretty old school ways of, of dealing with people who are going through psychosis or depression and mania. And, uh, you know, just to really put in perspective how much has changed in 60 years and um how much still needs to yeah uh, yeah that's that was really interesting and that you know just on that same sort of discussion about um medication who who would have known like it's certainly not common knowledge that uh the medis the medications that work for women before they hit menopause do not work after menopause you need to retitrate everything. Everything, yes, yeah. Yeah, you exactly. need to try new meds and then get the right dosage and make sure it doesn't have any negative side effects. And so, it's such a journey. That one of the things that I, and I know it affected both of us is what she talked about forgiveness, and I think it's going to surprise some people. So I don't want to give away anything, but when she talked about other people's forgiveness, it it broke my heart a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, for people who think that the stigma around mental health is going away, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this, you know, our, our intro podcast to this season was that when it comes to neurodiversity, there are some forms of neurodiversity that are being, people are becoming more accepting to, and they, and they're like, no, it's okay. You know, we see the value in this person does such great things and, and sort of there's more openness there, but in other forms in your diversity, there aren't, you know, there is still that stigma. There's still that resistance. I think what you, what our listeners will hear when they talk, when they listen to Sally is the same, um, 
the echo of that sort of, you know, well, some people are okay and some people are not okay with mental stigma as well. Enjoy listening to Sally. She has written two books. Uh, we talk about her books. We will put links to her books in, um, you know, in our show notes. This woman has had an extraordinary life and she really is trying to pay it forward with, with all the information she has garnered through her life and, you know, offering that so other people don't have to go through the struggles that she did. Uh, please listen and enjoy Miss Sally Alter. She is speaking. Yes, um, I'm Sally Alter, and I come from London. I now live in Texas. I've been here for, in the States for 31 years, so I'm not new here. This is the longest I've been anywhere. <laughs> and uh, I've got bipolar. I have bipolar disorder. I've had it since I was 15. So it's my whole life. I'm 75 almost, so it's a long time. And I'm speaking. Sally, welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners. Thank you for having me. That's very, very kind of you. In that little introduction, you referenced your age, which we don't necessarily need to go back to, but I would you know, sort of love to hear how you grew up. How did your mental health challenge present itself that made you think something's not right, something's off? Well, let me see, because I have to go back a long way. So did you grow, let me ask it this way. Did you grow up in London? Were you born there? Did you grow up there? Yes, I did. I was born in Twickenham, which is part of London now. It was just a tiny suburb before. But you know how cities grow and yes, that's what's happened to Twickenham. So it's part of London now. So I grew up in a very ordinary family, nothing unusual. And um, I had a, a big problem when I was 10 that my father died, so that was a major deal. And uh, after that, my, my mother died when I was 15. So it's been a bad start, but I've made up for it. <laughs> yeah, do you, do you have, have any siblings? I was gonna ask that same thing. Okay, I have a brother in Australia, but he's much older than me, he's now 90. So <laughs> he's really getting on. Every year he tells me I'm 90 now. And then he tells me I'm going to be 91 soon. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I can do math. Thank you. That's how yeah. it works, right? If either yeah. you're getting a year older or you're not around anymore. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. right. <laughs> I have one brother left. I had a brother called Graham. My brother in, in Australia is called Peter. And my brother Graham died about 10 years ago. And my sister Eileen died about eight years ago. So Peter and I are left. And as I said, he's much older than me. So I'm, I'm the baby. Oh, you're the baby. Okay. So you're, yeah. you're the, your two siblings who have passed are, were also older than you. Yes, they were 14 and, and 16 years older than me. When you talk about being the baby, you were really the baby, not just the youngest. I was the afterthought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the afterthought. Yeah, we have one of those in our family too. Yeah, oh, you do. We we're we're two of four, also. 
Okay. Angela, she's the oldest. And then me. And then we have a little sister. And then my little brother, our little brother came along only two years later, but he was a, he was not intended. So oh. we, we remind him of that fact all the time. <laughs> I'm sure you do. There's 11 years difference between me and my brother. So yeah, it's quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your family. Your parents died when you were young, young, right? That's a lot of trauma between for in five years. Yes, it was. What happened after your parents died? Did you go and live with a, a brother or a sister? I went to stay with my brother for a year and my brother and his wife. And that did not work out at all well. So I was on my own again after a year. I gave up school at 15 and went to work. And then I went to stay with my sister for a year. And that didn't work out either. (laughs) So I had to leave there. So when I was 17 or just 17, I lived on my own. And I had a a tiny bedsit, they call it, in London. And when you have a bedsit, it's one room with a bed, a chair, a wardrobe, a table, and a drop-down gas ring to cook your food on. <laughs> and it, yeah, it drops down from the wall. It's really amazing. <laughs> and you have to keep putting pennies in to feed it so that the gas doesn't go out. Oh, wow. Okay. And if you run out of pennies, that's your dinner ruined. <laughs> yeah. It's either not cooked or it's cold. Yeah. You're having crunchy pasta or something, you know? Right. Yeah. That's right. You have to learn. So you had mentioned that you were, you were, you've been bipolar disorder, right? Bipolar one, let's say, cause there are bipolar one and bipolar two, but you've had bipolar one since you were 15. Yes. Were you diagnosed at 15? No, it takes, it takes about 10 years to be diagnosed with bipolar. Is that standard? Is that how everyone experiences it? Yes. There's, there needs to be longevity in order to assess the symptoms. It's an average of 10 years. So some people it takes less, some more. And some people don't know they have bipolar till they're in their 40s or 50s. But the average onset age is about 19. Sally, would you say that the reason that there is like a decade from maybe first symptoms, you know, being symptomatic to diagnosis is because doctors are almost eliminating other diagnoses? Yes, that's exactly right. Right. So it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It's a, it's a diagnosis of elimination. It must be bipolar. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got it. What happens is mostly women begin with a depressive episode, whereas men start with a manic episode. I'm just giving you an average, you know, it's not definite. So what happens is a person with depression goes to the doctor and they're giving antidepressants and antidepressants can make people with bipolar manic. So they go straight from being depressed into being manic. But when you're manic, you don't remember it. It's something that happens, but you don't, you can recall it afterwards, but when you're going through it, you don't know it's happening. So what happens is people don't go to the doctor. They feel great. (laughs) You know, manic is wonderful. I must be, it must be working these antidepressants because I'm no longer depressed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So after, after a period of time, somebody in their family or their friends says, Hey, you're not right. You've got a problem. 
So then they go back to the doctor and they remember that they've had manic episodes. So when they say to the doctor, yes, I was a bit, you know, unhappy, <laughs> whatever, six years ago, whatever, then they get diagnosed with bipolar. I also wonder, I mean, just that you say the average age where a person gets diagnosed is 19. You're also dealing with layering on, on top of what people expect, you know, people in their young adolescence to go through. They're moody. Sometimes they're really energetic. Sometimes they just want to sleep all the time. You're trying to figure yourself out. You know, there's, there's always drama in your life as a teenager. So it takes like, you have to get out of that phase of being, you know, 15 to 18 in order to go, oh, this isn't just the fact that I'm growing up yes. going, you know, like getting, get, moving from a childhood to adulthood. There's something else going on. And the thing about that is when you're going through adolescence, your mood swings are very erratic. You know, you can be very excited in the morning and then crying in the afternoon, <laughs> very angry in the evening. But bipolar mood swings that take much longer than that. You're usually depressed for a week or two or three or months even. And you may have a manic episode that would last a week or more the same. So that's the, the difference between adolescence and bipolar, really. Well, in... Would you say, and so I work in mental health also. So I, I don't work with people with bipolar, but I work um, with products for schizophrenia. So there are parallels between the two, but I will not at all say that I understand bipolar. So a lot of this is coming from my understanding of schizophrenia. And I would love your take on, you know, what you're going through with bipolar. But my understanding is you also have, like, I think when people think of mood swings, right? You think of like a movie or TV where a woman is really angry and then she's crying and then she's happy and then she's pissed off. But you also have neutral times. It's not like you're depressed for a week and then you don't sleep for a week, but you are spending some time in the middle. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And I, when I talk about it, I think there's three personalities. There's your normal personality, and then which they call euthymic, by the way. That's your euthymic personality. Euthymic. Yes, when you're without symptoms. And then there's your depressed personality and your manic personality. <laughs> so it's quite interesting. And it is a roller coaster, like you say. Right. So you could really spend weeks or months being in that euthymic phase. Yes, years. Many people have years. It also seems like if you, correct me if I'm wrong again, if a person spends more time in the euthymic phase compared to the manic and depressive phases, that might also make it harder to diagnose because you're like, you're just like, if you spend three weeks in that phase and then you're up one week and down another week, it's like, oh, well, it's just life, right? Today's a tough week and you're tired. This is a great week and you're energized. And then you're just sort of like baseline. Wow. I can just see how difficult it can be to get an accurate diagnosis. Yes, it is. Given how, how complicated the symptoms appear, how different it is, right? It's not like diabetes where it's like, you take the blood test and then it's like either yes or no. It's either more or okay, right? right? This is very 
it's it's based on observation it's based on self-report i think you know what you were saying is that when people are in manic episodes they don't remember and they feel great well i don't need any help i'm fine i'm getting everything i'm getting so much done yeah (laughs) that's right something that really struck out struck me what you said was um that you're, you know, both your parents passed, which is a very traumatic, which can cause any kind of, you know, psychological breaks, but also you lost caregivers and a care team. Yes. Shailsha, you said like so much of it is on observation, but it's also external observation. Someone telling you you're acting weird, right? Or what's wrong? You haven't gotten out of bed for four days because for you, you're like, this is just who I am. This is how I feel. Yes. But you didn't have that, right, Sally? Like you you said, like you tried living with your brother. They were so much older than you, your brothers and sisters. So that might've even taken longer because the self-reporting is what you are relying on and your friends. And your friends are yes. not gonna be as like, hey, how? why are you being so odd, quote unquote. I'm, I wanted to tell you about when my mother died because that's when my bipolar started. When I, I've told you that most people start with a depressed episode when they're female. And I started with a manic episode. And it was very embarrassing <laughs> looking back because when my mother died, I went into a manic episode. So instead of being upset and crying, I was excited and carrying on. You know, it was the opposite. And it was very difficult for my family to understand what was happening yeah we've never discussed it but I'm sure it was difficult for them you've never discussed it no how about at the time were they like what why are you not sad like what's going on here why are you acting like this no I think they were mostly concerned with their own grieving that's true yeah you first sort of started to show or have these episodes at 15 Remind me again, when did you get your diagnosis? I'm not sure I was 25. So 10 years. Yes. And what, what was the impetus for seeking a diagnosis? Sort of what happened that you're like, oh, I think I need to get some help. This is a problem. I was in a, a clubhouse and I found a, a book in there called Mood Swings. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and when I read the book, I thought, that's me. That's what's wrong with me. So I went to my doctor and I said, here, this is the book I've read. And I said, I think I've got bipolar. It was called manic depression in those days. Mm-hmm, they changed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the name. Yeah. So he gave me lithium and it helped. It was fine. But I got thyroid problems from the lithium. So I went into hospital. Oh, it's a story. <laughs> I went into hospital in a manic episode and I had the thyroid problem. So I was a nuisance, to put it mildly. (laughs) They're like, could you stay in the bed, please? (laughs) They took me off the lithium and they got real proof that I definitely had bipolar. Oh, wow. Yeah, they had um, group meetings there, psychotherapy. And I was uncontrollable. I was going around the group and telling people what I thought of them, <laughs> telling them off and shouting at them. Oh, boy. And they put they put me out of the room because I was such a nuisance. They didn't <laughs> even allow you in group therapy anymore. No. <laughs> so they put you, and then they put you back on. They're like, no, you need to take your lithium because. Yes, they put me back on it. 
And then how do they treat the thyroid issue? Did you do, then have to take thyroid meds? Yes, thyroxine. Yes, it's very common to get that with lithium. Okay. And is that for the rest of your life? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. So that was when you were 25 and the lithium sounds like it really helped or it helped. I don't know if I would say, I can't, I'm not going to put the words in your mouth that it really helped, but it helped. It was amazing. I was well for a long time. I was well between uh, 25 and 47. I was well. So I, I got a, a good run in. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very stable for a long time. Does the lithium, do we know if the lithium, does it treat, help treat more of the manic symptoms or the depressive symptoms or both? Is it really kind of across it, the board? It works on the manic symptoms mostly. Yes. And it worked. It was great. Although I did have some psychosis during that period. And I think that's because I didn't drink enough water with the lithium. Oh. You know, that's something I didn't realize. I wasn't doing that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it's so interesting how, you know, this was, so you, you mentioned that you're almost 75. So this is 50 years ago. And, you know, we, we just have cleaner, cleaner drug profiles now, right? Where, if, if something might cause psychosis, it doesn't get approved by the FDA now in 2022. So it's just really interesting that, I mean, it's almost like, thank goodness you had that option though, even though it caused some psychosis, but it gave you 22 years of clarity and lucidity. That's right. Yeah. Right, right, right. It points to how hard it is to, to treat any kind of, you know, illness, but particularly mental health challenges, you know, mental health conditions in isolation and just treating the mental health piece without looking at, you know, your brain as part of your entire system, right? So that, I mean, this is always a side effect. You take one med- medicine and it causes a problem over here and then you got to take something to deal with this thing. Yes, um, you get side effects from everything. Right, right, right. Did, did drinking more water help with the psychosis? <laughs> was that, I mean, were you able to pinpoint like, that's probably what it is? No, I was really green at that time. Oh, wow. I didn't realize what was going on at all. But now I can see that's what it was, you know, looking back. Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight's a good thing. <laughs> so that from 25 to almost 50, 47, this helps. And then what happens at 47 where you're like, it's not working anymore. It's, I had menopause and that was it. Oh, yes. Well, everything went wrong. <laughs> it was terrible. And it went on for 20 years. It's been up until three years ago. I've been ill with wow. it. So it was like not even it was like a complete re like re-experiencing it all over again. Yes. Yes. And I've been really through the mill for all that time since I was 47. When you're ill, you're just so ill that you can't work it out. You don't know why you're so ill and nothing's working. Trying all these different medications, taking, I take six now, I think, five or six now. So, you know, trying to get a, a level balance is very, very difficult for the doctor. Yes. As well as you. I mean, it's, it's a work of art, really. It absolutely is. It's a, I always think about it like those mobiles where it's like, 
you're trying to find the perfect balance and this is too heavy over here. So you have to bounce it out this way. Absolutely. And then maybe, you know, and it's, it wobbles and then, you know, sometimes it's perfectly balanced, but then one thing can throw it off again. And now you got to figure it That's out right. all yeah. over. The balance also of efficacy, but also the side, like bouncing the side effects and the adverse events. Like you, I mean, psychosis is, a side effect, but that is not like, oh, I'm, I'm sleepy. <laughs> right. Some medicines can cause drowsiness. Psychosis is a whole different level of, of side effects. So having to, to balance that too, I mean. The- I wouldn't say that psychosis is a side effect. Okay. I would say that mania was. So you could go into manic episode and from that you go into a psychotic episode. Oh, I see. Yes, only if you've got bipolar one. Okay, I see. I see. Right. So people with bipolar two, they never have mania and they don't have psychosis either. They have hypomania. Sally, could you explain for our listeners and for us, really, me? Kosha knows more than I do, but for me, what is the difference between those, you know, bipolar one and bipolar two? Okay. Bipolar one and bipolar two have the same depression, all those. It's said by some people that bipolar 2 has more intense depression and for a longer period. But how you discover that, you know, is very difficult to say. You know, your depression is worse than mine or mine's sure, worse than sure. yours. <laughs> so that's always the same, the depression. But the mania is different. When a person goes into hypomania, they get um, the same symptoms as mania, but they never go into mania. So... A person with bipolar 2 can manage their life. They, they can cope with life, whereas a person with bipolar 1 loses control. That's basically the difference. And persons with bipolar 1 usually end up in hospital. Right. I, I think it's interesting you said it's like more severe depression for bipolar 2 because I also think like, how would one measure that? That's it. You know, you it's also, it's all, it's all self-report, right? So if like- It's subjective, yes. Mm-hmm. So I do know that with, with bipolar two, that definitely is like, we're talking about a diagnosis of elimination because it often gets misdiagnosed for years as major depressive disorder. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. People think they're just happy. You know, they have a hypomanic episode and they think, uh, oh, this is great. Life's wonderful. Sure. They don't feel ill at all. So they don't report it to anyone. I have a quick question because you said bipolar one, bipolar one will land you in the hospital. Are most people landing in the hospital due to the mania or due to the depression because they, they are going to hurt themselves or somebody else, or is it the mania that they're going out of control and they get hauled into the hospital under duress? They get hauled into hospital, whatever (laughs) they can get depression, mania, psychosis, or suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Wow. So all those things will take you into hospital. Right. Right. I see. Okay. And again, given how hard it is to, to be objectively reflective on yourself, that's impossible to do, right? That it's so important to have people around you who know you, who are paying attention, uh, who see you regularly to say, you haven't gotten out of bed in three weeks um, or you basically have slept for 
you know, two hours for three weeks, this is a problem. Um, in your situation, right. That you were by yourself and you're like, this is my life. That's right. This is normal for me. That was my normal. Mm -hmm. Right. Makes it so hard then to even think, well, could there be something wrong with me until you find some sort of objective touchstone to say, oh, maybe that's what's going on with me. I think you can be very blind to this disease. You know, most, most people that have it, it's just so complex. It's, it's really, really difficult to know when you're in a manic episode. In fact, I don't know anybody who knows. They can look back on it and say, oh, right, I was very manic. <laughs> and psychosis, definitely you can't tell you're in it. Well, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I were in a manic episode. I'd be like, I don't even want to not be in a manic episode, right? Absolutely. It feels, I can only imagine. Um, but I am definitely one of those go, 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 extroverted, outgoing people. Yes, type A. Yeah. And I, I love those experiences where I'm like, I did all this stuff today and I went out like, you know, it's like the go, go, go is really, I love that feeling. Yes. I would want, if I had that going on, I'd be like, I only want more of this. Right. People do. Yeah. Like not only that, but you like feel like you're on top of the world and you're amazing. And this, I'm who wouldn't want that. And people, people are so productive and they also report being very creative. That's true. I know somebody whose brother is bipolar one and is a painter. And when he is stable on meds, he says he quote, loses his creativity. So he actually is choosing to not take his medication. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, to both of your points, it's like, not only do you not know, but when you look back, unless you did something bad or wrong or illegal. Yes, you do. People do though. Oh, absolutely. They do. But it takes a lot for someone to realize that the mania is not okay or not healthy or not good for them. When you have mania, it's very common to upset everybody you know. <laughs> so she did. <laughs> well, it makes me laugh because I mean, I just remember this what you were saying, like, you're just going around telling everyone what you thought of them. Right. <laughs> I must be like, just on this side of manic most of the time, because <laughs> I'm always tempted to go around and tell people what I think of them. Oh dear. <laughs> I just don't. And so, but I don't. Right. And I think that's the thing where I'm like, this is, it's not going to work out the way I want it to be. That's the difference. That must be the difference. That you don't have a filter. Because you said like you went around the room telling people what you think and going off on people, but you say whatever comes in your mind. Is that? Yes. Yes. And you upset everybody you know. And by the time you finish, you've got no family and no friends. Mm -hmm. And that's common for most people with bipolar. You're on your own and that's it. Is that, is that before diagnosis or even after that? Because like before diagnosis, I wonder, like, do your friends and family just go like, well, she's just an asshole, right? Or she's just being mean. Yeah. But after diagnosis, are people more willing to go, are you on your medication? Do you need to go to the doctor? This is a manic episode. Or does it just, people get tired of it no matter what? I've never found that apologizing works. <laughs> I've tried it many, many times. And I've written, I've phoned and I've written emails and I've written long handwritten letters and nobody accepts apologies. Huh. Once you've 
done your damage with, with mania. That's it. Really? Yes. I lost all my family for years. Like I said, 50 yeah, years. Right, right, right. Yeah. But they seem to have forgotten it all now. <laughs> it's a very destructive illness. I can only Im- imagine. But I have a hard time thinking that you wouldn't forgive somebody for what happened be- during a time when they were ill and unmedicated. Yes. To me, that's like saying, I'm, I'm sorry, somebody not accepting the apology for passing out from having a hypoglycemic incident. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Person to being like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was needed to take medicine and it didn't happen. And the other person going like, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't accept your apology. Right. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, really speaks to the ways, the subtle ways in which there is still a stigma around mental health in a way that there isn't around physical health conditions, right? Around anything else. Nobody would ever refuse an apology. Absolutely. I have asthma. If I had a breathing episode and someone had to take me to the hospital because I couldn't breathe, I said, sorry, they wouldn't be like, I'm never talking to you again. Absolutely, that's the difference. Yeah, but there's something about mental health and I can understand, you know, it's not just like a one-time incident. It's still a health condition that was unmedicated. The stigma around mental health is still alive and well. In a lot of ways, it's subtle, but in a lot of ways, it is very plain and clear. I can give you an example of that. I'll give you a very good example. I went to a church for five years and everything was fine. Knew everybody, had lunch with them and so on. Then I announced that I had bipolar during one of my episodes Nobody spoke to me again. That was it. I was ostracized completely. And if people were in small groups talking, I'd go in to join them and they'd break up the group. And the, the final thing that got me was if I went up to sit next to somebody, they would get up. They would excuse themselves and get up. Oh, my gosh. So that's stigma for you. Right. I mean, that's that's the obvious way that that works out and that's in a church that's in a church exactly yeah that's so obvious and so public and painful yes it is i think what doesn't often get discussed or talked about or even really known right the the fact that there's all this private struggle too between you between a person and their family members or their friends where something has been done or said during an episode where it you just people cannot recover from that the relationship cannot recover because people take it i'm projecting right but i'm imagining people take it as like you did this on purpose yes yes it upset me personally right instead of it was an illness that was it was showing up in a certain way your illness is showing up in a certain way that's not how people see it no, they don't. No. Right. And that's, that's in addition to the public stigma, there's all of the sort of private pain and stigma that comes along in relationships, which, you know, that does, like I said, that doesn't happen in, with heart disease or asthma or. No, it doesn't. That's right. You could take a person to the hospital 50 times for a diabetic episode and they won't go, you're doing that to me on purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got a long way to go on that. That's with mania. 
but we haven't talked about depression. Let's go there. Let's talk about depression then. Yes. If you've got depression, if you get very seriously depressed, then you don't have any friends either with that. Because <laughs> you push everyone away. Everybody doesn't know what to do. They, they try this, they try that, try the next thing, then they give up. Say, oh, goodness, I had enough of that. <laughs> I have a friend. I have anxiety. I have severe anxiety. I'm medicated. I am under control for the most part. But sometimes I get some anxiety, you know, kind of bubbling up. And a friend of mine also has anxiety. And his joke, our joke is always, uh, well, have you thought about not worrying? Like, did you try not worrying about it? <laughs> and that's right. really right that's like that makes you anxious yeah I'm, I'm like oh no I didn't think about that right but people <laughs> with depression have the same thing and as Shailu she said we think about mental health as so different than physical health no one would say you know oh you don't have the flu just get up and walk around <laughs> exactly where you would say to someone with depression like don't be sad just go outside and walk around like we say that to people with mental health issue we do yes people do tell you that when you're depressed you know oh you should get up and go out you know go meet people go out and see people but the last thing you want to do is get up and go out yeah you know you lose all motivation to do anything and people with depression isolate which makes the depression worse but that's how it goes and then it makes them want to isolate more and not see anybody and it's absolutely yeah horrible you know self-fulfilling prophecy Yes, it is. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the most, uh, from my limited experience with depression, um, you know, I don't, I don't experience it on a, you know, regular ongoing basis, like many people do, but my one year with pretty ser- severe postpartum depression, I just remember thinking, what's the point? Why, what it's all, it's, it's going to be like this forever and ever. Absolutely. That's depression. What's mm-hmm. the point of going outside or drinking water or getting out of the bed, nothing's going to make it better. I'm not going to suggest that drinking water or going outside or getting out of the bed is going to solve, you know, be the cure for depression. But I think it does make you feel a little bit better, right? Like being in the sunshine is, it's a little bit energizing, right? Even those little steps can make a difference. You still need to take your medicine, do all your therapy, that stuff. But like, I never had experienced it until, you know, I just remember thinking like, I'm just stuck in this hole the rest of my life. I'm sorry you had to go through that. I appreciate that. Very hard. It's, and it, and it is very isolating because you just think like what, I think this, what is the point question? Yes. It's like one thing if you're like, okay, well, this is going to be hard, but you know, I'm going to get out of bed and this is going to happen. I'm going to do this. The sort of spirally question of like, nothing is ever going to change. What's the point? I could, I could lie here all day. I could blah, blah, blah. And it will always be like, it's always going to feel like this forever. Yes. Is a particularly, you know, it's like a, it's like the thing sucks you down into the depths. One of the, one of the symptoms is worthlessness. When you're depressed, you, you just think you're useless and nobody wants to know you. Uh, you're worthless on this earth. You don't matter. Nobody cares. And why bother? And then when people are like, well, I've tried and they kind of give up. Yes. Your instinct is to say, see, see, they don't want to be my friends. Everyone has left me. That's it. 
I was right. I'm worth That's it. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think the final bit as we're talking about this, especially for bipolar, is that you then go back and forth between thinking you're worthless and you can't get out of bed and what's the point to like, I'm the most amazing person in the world. <laughs> you know, then like I can do anything and... <laughs> Everyone needs to hear my opinions about everything. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. You can be you can be manic for a period of time and then suddenly the next morning you wake up, I want to die. I mean seriously. And then people are like, What happened to you? Right? It's hey, we were hanging out for three weeks and now you won't even answer your phone. And you know, it's it's so hard for other people to interpret are you know anyone's behavior without knowing what might be going on yeah and then layer on top of it which is like people also think of mental health as very different than other kinds of you know physical health issues so the suicide rate i was going to tell you about the suicide rate because it, it's very very high in bipolar it's um 13 to 22 percent of people with bipolar that's almost a quarter of the people so one in four I didn't realize it was that high. And then there's many that attempt it many times. And then, you know, I've, I've attempted it once a long time ago. And I, I got lucky. <laughs> Again, we, I keep coming back to this idea of the stigma because there are still people who are like, will look at a suicide attempt or suicide and say, that person was selfish or whatever it is, right? That putting it on the person and not on the illness. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, you know, you just need someone to go like, well, this is a, you know, mental health, mental illness is, it's a trap. And suicide is honestly, I, what I, how I talk about it is it's, it's the final symptom. Yes, it is. Of mm -hmm. depression or of bipolar. One of the symptoms of depression is feeling suicidal. Absolutely, right. So I always tell people that's only a symptom. It doesn't mean you, you need to do it. Don't carry it out. It's just a symptom of depression. I feel that helps a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I like how you say that. That is, that is a game changer sentence. It's helpful. Yes. There are meds that like, I was going to say the side effect or one of the symptoms is like sleepiness. Like, but you don't have to sleep all day, right? I just, it's like having the choice to say this is a symptom of my illness and not carrying it out. That is brilliant, actually. That's a very, very good point. Okay, I'm done talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to shift a little bit because I also want to be real mindful of time. I know we said an hour and a half and I wanted to ask you about your the books you've written and published and sort of like, you know, I want to hear that story. We would like to hear that story and share that with the listeners. Wh when did you think about writing a book? What motivated you? Let's start there. Like, what was the motivation? Yeah, with your first book, we'll start there. Have you heard of Quora? Yes. 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 Okay. It's a question and website, international. And there's millions and millions and millions of people on it all over the world. And I write for Quora. I've been writing for two and a half years. And I've written 4,000 answers. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of answers. That is a lot of answers. That's awesome. 
So you said two and a half years. So you did mention that you have been stable for about three years. Yes. So this mm -hmm. opportunity really came after your second bout of stability. Okay. Yes. Right. And for our listeners, I just want to recap that between 47 and 70, let's say the medicine, the lithium stopped being effective and it took that long to find another medication that would really st stabilize your condition. It's not just a medication. It's a oh, whole it's medications. The cocktail. combination, a cocktail. Yeah, right. I think I take, I think I take six at the moment. Yes. To find the combination of medicines that would, you know, stabilize your condition. So that was say, you know, we're talking three, four years ago. Yes. Yeah. Three years ago. Three. Okay, great. Yeah. So here we are 71, 72, and you're writing for Quora. You've written That's all it. these answers. What what made you think this would be a great book? Well, I've I'd written over eight hundred answers on bipolar, so I I thought, well, that's a lot of answers. <laughs> I should be getting paid for this better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I met somebody on Quora, a woman that I'm now a friend with, and we write all the time, and she said, "Why don't you write a book?" And I said, "What me? You know, I can't write a book." <laughs> And she said, of course you can. You just use your answers from Quora and put them in a book. So I thought, well, that's a good idea. You know, I've written all these answers. I may as well try it. So my first book was a question and answer book on the questions I've answered on Quora. And I've got 125 questions. And it goes into great depth and it gives lots of anecdotes as well. So tell us the title of your book. It's called How to Live with Bipolar how to live with bipolar and it's a like you said it's a Q&A book with examples and stories yes mm -hmm. but it is really designed or it's really intended for somebody who has now been diagnosed yes but is like and what am I supposed to do now that's right okay would you say that your audience is for patients or do you have family answers and friends and caregivers or is it really for the person who's living with bipolar? I did arrange it to be for the person who's living with it. But since it's been published, I've had lots and lots of reviews saying how helpful it's been for the family and friends. So that's, yeah, I'm glad. I didn't actually intend that. But my next book I've written, I, intend, I intended to have the family and friends in it. So tell us a little bit about that book. Okay, it's not a question and answer book. It's another Q&A book. Okay. No, it's not. No, oh, it's, oh not. it's not. Sorry. Okay. It's double the thickness. It's very, very thick book. <laughs> <laughs> and it covers everything in bipolar. I'll read you the, the type of things it covers. Yeah. It's got six sets. Well, so before you do that, what's the title of the book? It's called Bipolar One Rescue Plan. It's a practical guide for you and your family. Wonderful. And that tells you exactly. It's only for bipolar one. Okay. Because not, not many books have been written for bipolar one. Oh, okay. And it covers bipolar basics, symptoms of bipolar, complications of bipolar, treatment of bipolar, lifestyle changes, and what was the last one? Management of bipolar. So it covers all those different things, and I've gone into great detail about everything. How difficult was that for you personally to write? Did it feel like you were rehashing a lot of the 
the, you know, you're taking off that Band-Aid again and kind of rehashing what you'd gone through? No, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me at all. I enjoyed it. It was great fun writing that book. I wrote it in nine weeks. So. <laughs> wow. I think, I mean, it also sounds like it was really helpful to have already thought through a lot of these things that you would want to say, because you had been an author on Quora for so long that, you know, you kind of already had thought through some of the answers or what are the questions that people might want to know instead of starting it from scratch and doing the research of like, oh, what kind of questions should I answer? Oh, I had no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So your first book is definitely out in the world. We know that. Is your second book also out in the world? It came out in March 28th. Okay. And it's both of them are doing extremely well. I bet. I'm selling loads on, on Amazon. They're really selling well. That's wonderful. Yeah, much more than I expected. Yeah, the reviews are, I, I read through some of the reviews too on Amazon and people are saying, this saved my life. Some people are saying, oh my gosh, someone, I under, I'm not alone. But also I did read on the rescue plan. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was on the first book. It was someone said, now I understand what my sister is going through. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we break down stigma is mm -hmm. understanding somebody else, really what they go through their human experience, because then you start to break down the barriers between people. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wow. What a, I mean, what a great gift to the world because it, it's not just, it's clearly not just, I think I have this problem. Tell me what I can do about it. It's somebody I know and care about has this problem. What's going on? What can I do about it? But even at the baseline, what's going on, right? As Kosha, you said, it helped me understand what my sister's going through. Nobody can ever really understand what no, you can't. What it's like, but if you can at least imagine it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, as I said before, a very destructive illness. It seems to me a shame that it's the only illness I know that changes your personality. Like if you have diabetes, you're, you're the same person. You don't change your character or anything else. Right. 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 Yeah. I shouldn't say character. I should say personality. Sure. So it, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. Is it, are you, are you saying that it changes your, it changes who you are because you've got these three distinct personalities or that having bi bipolar one inherently is something that changes who you are because of the episodes you go through, or is it both? Well, it, it changes who you are because one minute you're okay, <laughs> you're a normal person. Then the next minute you're in bed and can't get out of bed and being very irritable and annoying. You don't want anybody near you. And then you, the next minute you're having a wonderful time. <laughs> well, it's like Jekyll and Hyde. Yes, yeah, a Jekyll and Hyde. Where it was a bipolar person, right? That's right. It's a Jekyll and Hyde. But I think to... To add on to Shailshi's question, because I think this is really interesting, do you find that your euthymic person, your euthymic personality has changed because of the highs and lows that you've had? Or does that change like just with age or just with, you know, you move to Texas and those things change you? Do you think that your euthymic person is different because of these extreme high highs and low lows? I don't really think it makes any difference. 
I think your personality is how you've lived your life. Hmm. I've had a long life. <laughs> yeah, because you can't you can't separate them, right? No, exactly. Because there's ongoing cycling, you know, regardless of the length of the cycle or the, you know, the sort of whichever part of the cycle you're in, there's a lack of stability in the sense of that you never feel like you're actually one coherent personality that you become, the person becomes fractured into three different selves. Yes, absolutely. And you feel very unsafe because you're really not sure what's going to happen when you wake up. Well, because you said that you did like you could be on top of the world partying until 3 a.m. and then not want to get out of bed. So was there any were there triggers or signals that that led you? Okay, a a manic episode is coming. What or was it truly like, I really don't know what I'm going to be tomorrow. (laughs) It's difficult to say. So that there's anxiety. There's anxiety. Oh, my God. I'm already anxious. Just listen to that, which is like to not know what state you're going to wake up in the next day. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because like, there's one thing be like, okay, my, you know, my part or my partner or my friend, she could have high highs and low lows. I don't know what I'm going to expect from her. Right. We've all had bosses where we're like, we have to, you know, walk on eggshells because we don't know what to expect from our boss, but for yourself, I don't know what I'm going to wake up in the morning as, or even in the daytime, you might change several times a day. I've had that myself. It's, it's um, ultra rapid cycling. Ultra rapid cycling. Yes, where you change from manic to depressed to psychotic to ordinary, all in one day. Mm-hmm. Up and down, up and down. And you're exhausted. This sounds like incredibly physically exhausting, like I was going to say. Like, it's one thing, like your mental energy. Yes. But it's another thing to be like, I am physically tired. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's tiring. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is the ultra rapid cycling managed separately? Is that a whole separate aspect to manage? Or is it something that some people experience, but there's nothing, there's nothing unique or different about that. It's just something that shows up for some people. No, it's very unusual. It is very unusual. Okay. Yes. And it needs to be treated differently. Uh, okay. It's in, in what ways? It with medication. Oh, with different medications or different yes. dosages. Okay. And that's up to the doctor. Right. Sure. One thing I would recommend with any bipolar is to have therapy, psychotherapy. So it's part of the, it's, it's um, you've got medication and therapy. They go together. Mm-hmm. I've had a therapist for 20 years, so more than 20 years. I, well, and therapy is, let's say it, should be in the water for everybody. We should all, like everyone needs therapy in some way. That's right. But, but I think that in mental health, there's, there's either people who say like, I don't want to take medication or you go, well, I'm on medication. I don't need therapy. Yes. And it's just like, you just need both. You need that holistic way of treating your human person, right? Not just the diagnosis or the symptoms, but as a person, you know, like you said, those things change you. Um, can I ask, before we move, you know, on as, as we're wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you, you have had bipolar for now 50 years diagnosed, probably about 60 years. Yes. You know, before your diagnosis as well. 
what has changed in, in your view, right? Your personal experience in terms of the mental health community, society at large, patients, uh, caregivers, what has changed when we when we think about bipolar one? I'd love to say something changed, but I really can't. Oh. To me, it's been it's stigma all the way. It's just been like that all my life. Well, that's lovely. And it's also and is there a stigma known. in the medical community, like even from your psychiatrist? Yes, very much so. Yes. So why do people go into psychiatry? <laughs> I've been in hospital for a TIA. I had a manic attack at the same time and I got, got no help whatsoever from that. The, the nurses ignored me. So I was stuck in hospital. <laughs> you were just stuck there awful. in a manic episode, having a trans ischemic attack. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So nobody knows what to say to nobody, that because that's right. really intense. So everything sucks and our mental health community. What, can I ask, was that in the United States? Yes, it was. That's not surprising. That's not surprising. What is different in the UK versus here? That's a good question. The UK, I haven't been in the UK for 30 years. So what I'm talking about may be out, out of date. I don't know. But I went into hospital many times in the UK. And the way they treat you there is they don't lock the doors. They treat you like an ordinary person coming and going. And I was in hospital for three months on one occasion. And I went to work every day. I was psychotic. <laughs> and I went to work every day and came back to the hospital at night, had my dinner and went to sleep, wake up in the morning, back to work and so on. Okay. I'm a little confused. I by know. That. Is, is that better? I'm confused. <laughs> well, you can't do that in America because they lock you in. Well, I, and I, I don't think it's great to lock people in their rooms and be like, that's that, you know, that's not cool either, but it seems like there's why would okay let me formulate the question kosha maybe you have this you can formulate it better why would they let you leave if you're in a psychotic state then why even go to the hospital at all to get your medication adjusted oh so you're is that considered inpatient that's why you go to hospital in the first place to get your medication uh, adjusted oh okay now i understand because that you know as you know, that's a very different system than what oh, happens yeah. here, which yes. is you go to the, you go to your doctor, they give you the prescription, you go pick it up somewhere else. And then you go to the hospital when you are, cannot manage with your medication through the pharmacy. Yes, but they, they still, they still work on your medication. When you get to hospital, they still change everything. Absolutely. Sure, sure. I'm just trying to understand, like, why would you go to the hospital if you could leave instead of just being in your house. But that would explain, that explains a lot of it. Yeah. Okay. And then do you find that the stigma that we keep coming back to as like one of these base problems is the stigma really the same world round? Yes, I think so. In some countries it's even worse. It's even worse. Like India and Pakistan that it's, you can't mention. Well, and in, in, as we know, just being Indian, almost any, it's either, there's one of two ways that it goes there. It's either completely ignored or it's completely, people are completely ostracized. There's nothing like, oh, we'll figure it out. Like if, if you're not a problem, if your mental health issues don't pose problems for other people, 
then they just ignore it. Oh, you're depressed, whatever is, you know, that person's whatever they write you off as. But if you are, you know, manic or for example, I can imagine schizophrenia or other types of illnesses where there are outward symptoms that really are, you know, interfering with other people, then you just get written off. Oh, wow. <laughs> exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> Try living it. <laughs> exhausting just I was going to say it. it's exhausting listening. So, <laughs> but there's also, you know, I think you've been living with this for 50 years, 60 years. And that that's not to say, oh, now you know how it is, right? It's, that's not to say that, but I think the empathetic parts of Kosha and I go are are just now entering into an understanding of what the you know what it's like, what the challenges are. Um, I hadn't, you know, I don't think either one of us had any idea that menopause can completely throw off whatever success you'd had with lithium because it stops working. It's very common that, and I put it in my book. I've written a whole chapter on menopause. But that's so critical for women to understand because that's not well known, right? So you go, if, if you didn't know that and nobody told you that, then you would really be struggling to understand what happened. Well, nobody told me either. <laughs> right? And you went for 20 years without, 20 some years without, being able to, to know it, right? So you were, that it wasn't working and all this stuff. And if someone had said, Hey, when you hit menopause, yes, <laughs> rethink it because it will not, it will stop working and men don't have that problem. So that's another bit of it. It doesn't do much for your marriage. I've been, I've wrecked three marriages. How's that? i now you brought it up. I'm going to have to ask you. <laughs> Who can say? Let's say when were the three marriages in the in the course of your life? Okay. I got married at 19. I was living on my own at 17 and I met him and got married at 19. And that didn't work out at all. And I left when I was 21. I got married again at 21. And that was on and off, on and off till I think I was 32 when we got divorced. Then I married again at 35 and that lasted till 22 years ago and he committed suicide oh my goodness so that was that was there a diagnosis there for him was there a diagnosis did he was he diagnosed with a mental illness no Mm. i think he had depression but he wouldn't admit it that stigma oh my god if we can just get people to stop stigmatizing getting help yes mm-hmm. yeah the three of us could change the world but he couldn't cope with my bipolar at all really mm. yeah, it got too much but this is that sounds like something his excuse that he couldn't cope that he put it on you that he couldn't cope his he put it on you it's your bipolar that is so difficult but he was clearly going through a mental illness struggle himself yes he must have been yeah absolutely so you know because when you you don't okay this is going to sound very black and white but if you can't deal with the spouse in whatever way that is you divorce them right you don't take your life 
That's right. Taking your life as a mental health, right? That's a mental illness. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that that was, he couldn't cope, but he couldn't cope with his own. His own life. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine, you know, also, because we see this a lot just in the in the public, right? Two people have either the same type of mental health struggle or, you know, complementary mental health issues. Um, and that one person's challenges exacerbate the other person's challenges. And it's really a matter of like, who's managed and who's not. And, you know, I just, I think about, and this is not at all, you know, so I'm not like drawing the parallel, but there, there are any number of celebrity couples who both of both people have challenges going on and one person eventually does something and, you know, hurts themselves or kills himself. And the other person is still having mental health challenges. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that immediately comes to mind is Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. Yes. Both of them had mental health issues and they were both self-medicating. One person could not cope with not only their mental health, but the other challenges posed by the other person. But it's just sort of like a, almost seems like a, like who's going to experience more at what time and are they able to cope as opposed to, I, I agree with Kosha. It's not fair. It was never fair of that person to put it on you to be like, I can't cope with your stuff. No, no, I can't cope with my stuff. That's right. Right. And part of what I'm dealing with is the relationship I have with you. Right. Coach is right. Like if it was just like, oh, I can't deal with you anymore. Then you go, I need a divorce. Like the other two people did. Right. Yeah. Right. That's such a, I mean, it's so interesting. Again, the stig- like Kosha was saying, the stigma rears up and it's like, I don't even want to admit to myself that I'm having mental health issues, mental health challenges to the point of which I'm pushed to ending my life because I don't see any other way out of it. The stigma against suicide is perhaps even worse. Agreed. I'm telling you about it, but it's not something I can talk about because people don't want to know about suicide. Yeah, that's true. It's just as bad as mental illness. And you know, that's a really interesting point, Sally, because when people talk about suicide, if if someone says, you know, I, I have suicidal ideation, if someone outside of the medical and even medical personnel are not comfortable with it, but you get very uncomfortable. You do not know what to say to that person who's like, I was thinking about ending it. And then I had to go to the hospital. It is like, it is, you want to get yourself out of that situation as soon as possible, you know, versus actually being like, tell me about that. Talk about, you know, that, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's a really good point about it. it the stigma against it is, is terrifyingly strong yes mm-hmm. and debilitating it's like you were saying before there is so much stigma we don't that means we don't talk about it that means if somebody comes to us and says hey i'm struggling with depression i'm struggling with bipolar i'm struggling with suicidal ideation we don't know what to say mm-hmm. yeah we don't know how to respond because there's no conversation about it on a national level. There's not like a, there's not like a book called bipolar one, a rescue plan. 
Well, there wasn't. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. There is. <laughs> Read my book. <laughs> I'm thinking about when Kosha and I were in school here in the States, there is absolutely, it's, it's like drilled into every school kid's head. Like if your clothes catch fire, what do you do? Stop, <laughs> drop and roll. <laughs> there's all of this. If this happens, what do you do? There's all of that kind of like, we can, we can tell you what to do if you, your clothes catch fire. But if your friend comes up to you and says, I'm thinking about killing myself, there's what people just go, uh, right. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Right. make it worse but That's you also true. don't know what the thing to say is what the right thing is yeah how can you be supportive and then people don't actually think to say how could i be supportive which is really the question they say stuff like just try not being sad <laughs> yeah. right <laughs> i mean what you say is correct but what what can we do about it it's ignorance basically ignorance if you if you can educate somebody then they understand better absolutely that's why I write it. <laughs> because if we can educate people, you know, we can we can address some of these issues. What advice do you have for somebody who may think that they are bipolar, may think that they, you know, know someone who's bipolar, someone that they care about this experience, these symptoms, or that they're just newly diagnosed? Or that they're, you know, not even newly diagnosed. They have been diagnosed and they're sort of trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to manage this? What advice do you have for those people? You have to be very honest about this. It's a complex illness and it, the solution is not going to come to you immediately. It takes a while to work on your medications and you have to be very cooperative with the doctor. And if you want to stop taking your medications, you're going to be ill. There's no two ways about it. People that say, oh, I've come off my medication. I'm fine. Down the road, bipolar comes back. It's the monster around the corner. And it will come back and get you. So you have to take your medication. And if you can get therapy, that's really good too. But I would say that there's a lot of hope these days because they are inventing new medications. So all the time you've got something new to try. Like the one I take now is called Braylar, and it's a new medication. And I've been well ever since I've taken it for three years. So that's been really great. I'm not saying that will suit everybody, though. You know, everybody has a different medication. So I would say you have to remain hopeful that something will help. And hang in there. I love it. I think everyone in different you know, volumes and different strengths gets the idea of like, what's the point? I'm saying some people definitely have it stronger, people with bipolar, depression, postpartum, depression, that kind of thing. The difference is just how quickly we can bounce back to the hang in there moment, that there is help around the corner. Yes. So Sally, I'm going to say that uh, you have been so lovely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Shay Lushi and I highly recommend if you think you're bipolar, if you think you have something going on, if you think one of your friends or family is bipolar, or just if you need to know more to, to tear down the stigma and the barriers, go out and get How to Live with Bipolar, Bipolar Basics, Coping with Bipolar, Depression, and Mania uh, by Sally Alter and her newest book, which just was published a month and a half ago, Bipolar One Rescue Plan, A Practical Guide for You and Your Family.
That's great. Excellent. Thank you. And, you know, I think we can thank you for being a guest. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed it. But also thank you for writing those books. Thank you for putting that out in the world because I think it's going to be so, so, so critical. You think I should write another one now? <laughs> yes. And it should be my life as a podcast guest. Okay. <laughs> there you are. No, I think, I think the advocacy is vital to bringing down those stigmas and you're, you're really using your experience and the high highs and low lows you've had to help the world. And that's, that's all anyone can ask for. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank you for your time. You've been fantastic. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye.